like Joseph was. I bet Benjamin was guarded to the hilt uh, uh, by Jacob because this is the last remaining uh, child from his beloved, super beloved wife. Now, if you recall also, uh, when Jacob had his dream that got him into trouble in the first place, there was 11 stars, a moon, and a sun that bowed down to him. But only 10 are going. That's an important little detail here. For Scripture to be fulfilled, all 11 must go down and bow down to him. So we'll see this play out. Now the other thing about Jacob that I want to keep pointing out, there's a contrast with Jacob over and over in his life that we have to just kind of, I'm not trying to nitpick, I'm not trying to really just say he's an awful person, but he does serve an example of what not to do often for us. Uh, And one of the things in Jacob's life is he is riddled by fear. His whole life is, is about being afraid of the wrong things. Uh, in Genesis, it starts off where his, uh, his mother, Rebecca, is trying to convince him to you know, dress up and play this hairy person of Esau so his father, Isaac, will give him the spiritual blessing. And here's his words. He says, but my brother's hairy man. He says, what if my father touches me? I will appear that I am tricking him and will bring a curse on myself. And the mother says, hey, let the curse fall on me. Instead of arguing, hey, this isn't right, you know, he's more worried about what's going to happen to him. Kind of selfish little thought process going on. Uh, but you can see that's kind of the nature of this guy. Jacob's, it's all about him. Always, always very self-centered kind of a mentality. And his fear drives him to make awful decisions. Um, one, he should have never been in that situation. He should have never done that. I believe that God, if God providentially wanted Jacob to be the heir, the son, the spiritual uh, patriarch to go through, it doesn't matter what words would have came out of Isaac's mouth. In fact, God might have even shut Isaac's mouth when he tried to bless Esau. He only the kind of blessing that would have come out, and God would have revealed it somehow to Isaac. And Jacob would have, if he just trusted God, really. If Jacob just would have been afraid of more of what God thought of him in his life. Instead, Jacob is ruled by fear of the wrong things. So this fear of the wrong things motivates him to do things that are goofy throughout his whole life. Uh, for example, when he's coming back and Esau, after many, many years, he's, he's afraid his brother Esau is still holding a grudge and going to kill him. So what he does is he, he splits up his family and he gives them lots of gifts and he kind of bribes him uh, at the end of the day and he bows down to him seven times on the way in. Uh, and Esau's, what are these gifts you're doing here kind of thing? And he's like, oh, because you're my Lord. And you see all this uh, kind of this glorious language that Jacob's using. Again, because he's afraid. But he's, is, is his fear misplaced? My suggestion is it is. And it's just like us to do this as well. Other verses, uh, Jacob was afraid again in his life uh, when he snuck away in the middle of the night. He took his wife, Rachel, and Leah and all his kids, and then Laban comes after him. And Laban's really mad. And guess what? God shows up and gives Laban a dream and says, hey, don't you mess with Jacob. So Laban catches up to Jacob. He has the right to do bad things to Jacob, but he doesn't. And he even tells him, hey, God told me not to mess with you, so I'm not going to. So Jacob has all this reinforcement in his life that, God, you can really trust him. And you really should be just fearful of what God thinks of you and not so much of what others think of you. But yet Jacob keeps falling back into this trap of letting all these fears grip him to make bad decisions. And I think, sadly, we're like this. Are we not afraid of what people think of us sometimes? And because of the fear of what people might think of us, we may do something we wouldn't ordinarily do. Uh, maybe it's at our job place. Maybe, it's, maybe we take on a spouse 
you know, uh, dudes will lower their standard and pick up a woman, or a, a woman might lower their standard and pick up a guy that's not godly. Um, and this is a horrible tragedy because now they're attached to something that shouldn't be right. But because the fear of being alone is so great in their life, they make really bad choices. Now, I think there's, I could just go on and list all kinds of fears, and I could probably list all kinds of things and that, of bad decisions that we have done in our life because we put fear or misplaced fear in the wrong places. Now, Joseph stands as a counter to Jacob's life. Joseph goes thrown in the prison. He's like put in all these bad situations. And the one thing that you see about Joseph is he fears God all the time. No matter where he's at, it seems like God is all that matters to Joseph. And you'll see that kind of play out in this. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him and their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Now, he spoke harshly and they bowed down to him. So you think, hey, this is the prophecy unfolding. No, there's only 10 brothers here. Something's not right still. Now, I don't know if Joseph knew that or if Joseph was thinking that in his mind when, when he plays out the rest of the story. Um, but I find it very interesting here that Joseph, we find out later, he's not even speaking to them in Hebrew. He's speaking through an interpreter and he's speaking harshly. Like, some, like right away, he's treating them as outsiders and potentially bad people. Um, and I find it gripping that they don't recognize him. And you say to yourself, well, how do they not recognize him? I mean, surely they, they knew his brother. Well, I would contend that he doesn't look like their brother at this point. He's blending in with the crowd quite nicely. Plus, it's been 20-plus years. We actually don't know how long it's actually been. Uh, we know he was with Potiphar's house about 13-so years and in jail part of that time. And then there were seven years of famine, so now you're up to 20. So he was like age 17 when they threw him in a pit and sold him off. Now he's 37 plus. I mean, he could be in his 40s. We have no idea how long the famine it was before they came. So it could be several years into the famine. Regardless, it's 20 years plus. He's not, he's shaved because the Egyptians, their culture, they don't, they're not like Hebrews. Hebrews grow out their beards. They're, they're hairy fellows. They, they're man men kind of thing. Um, Egyptians are not like that. They, they shave everything. Uh, they wear pointy hats. They just, it'll look like a different culture. Um, plus there's only one of him. There's 10 of them. So for Joseph to recognize them, it's much easier of a job for him to recognize them, for them to recognize him. Regardless, he's using it to his advantage, clearly. Uh, he says, uh, what do you come here for? And they say, well, we're just here buying food, you know, relax kind of thing almost. So the story continues. He says, then he remembered his dreams about them. I find that interesting. He says, then he remembered his dreams about them. Uh, you are spies, what did that have to do with the dream? I don't know. It says, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. Uh, and they say, no, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. So you can kind of see this going back. Now, I think the one thing that really, honestly, he could take objection to was the fact that it says, your servants are honest men. Are they really honest men? I mean, they sold Joseph into slavery and went and lied about it. Um, maybe not quite as honest as you think they are. 
Uh, so <laughs> they're trying to defend themselves. Hey, we're all sons of one man. We're honest people. And he says, no, <laughs> of course not. Now, he doesn't just go out and basically say who he is. He doesn't reveal it. He keeps it hidden at this point. Uh, and it's played out a little bit more. It says, but they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lived in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you. You are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of, them, uh, one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then, as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in the custody for three days. Uh, so one thing that's kind of interesting, details that are popping out to me, he says, your servants were 12 brothers. Perhaps they believe the lie that maybe after they sold him, maybe he is dead. They don't know. Um, but they're sticking to that lie regardless. Uh, they say one is no more, referring to Joseph, when ironically Joseph is standing right there in front of them. Uh, they don't know this, of course. Uh, and they said the youngest brother must come back. Now, why did Joseph put that on his heart to say that the youngest brother must come back? Did, was it the dream? Is he invoking the dream that all 12 or all 11 must bow to him? I don't know. But I think it's an interesting detail nonetheless, um, the fact that he uses this as part of the test. Now, Joseph's a smart guy. He probably knows with him out of the picture that Benjamin probably did get elevated to the, to the favored son status. So maybe he's trying to figure out, well, do these brothers have the same contempt for Benjamin that they had for me? Do they hate him just as much as they hated me, so much so that they got rid of me? So he's trying to test the waters and try to find out. So he's, he's plugging away and pulling out information and trying to feel these guys out to see who they really are. Have they changed at all? Are they the same people that I left them as? Uh, notice the other little details that uh, he, he doesn't back down uh, from his contention. These guys are trying to pour out all this truth and honesty, so to speak. And uh, Joseph is throwing it on. No, you're spies. Three times he's like, no, you're spies. Don't, stop saying that. You're spies. Uh, so he's laying this out. And he's also, this weird thing that I picked up on too, is the fact that he, he says, as surely as Pharaoh lives, he's swearing by Pharaoh's name over and over again. Um, that, that back in that time, commonly, Pharaohs were considered gods. They called themselves gods and deities. That's how they bowed down and so forth. Uh, they deified themselves. Um, so he's, he's looking the part of an Egyptian because he keeps swearing by uh, the Pharaoh's name, but that changes eventually. That's why I'm bringing that detail out. Uh, so he put them in custody for three days. I think that's interesting. Uh, the story is, okay, I'll send one of you back, but the rest of you are going to have to stay here in prison. But until then, actually what he does is he actually puts them all in prison for three days, and it's like he needs, he needs to calm down and let cooler heads prevail because he ends up changing this plan. Instead of sending one back, he sends all, all of them back but one. He flips it the other way around. Um, do you think he got a little bit of joy out of putting these guys in prison? You know, like, he was put in a pit, and then he was put in prison for several years. These guys got to spend three days in prison. Do you think that maybe Joseph just wanted them to t taste just a little bit of what he's had to go through and endure? Maybe. I don't know. Possibly. Why three days? I don't know. Maybe he knew about Jesus raising from the dead in three days? I don't know. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Three days always keeps appearing. 
over and over throughout Scripture. You see it again in verse 18. He says, On the third day Joseph said to them, uh, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and t- take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen, and that's why this distress has come on us. So three days later, uh, after putting in prison, Joseph's had time to think about what's going on. He kind of reverses the game plan. Uh, instead of sending one brother home, now he's sending all the brothers home and keeping one brother. So he reverses it. Notice also what he says here, a little hint of, uh, of the true character of who Joseph is. He says, for I fear God. In other words, he's not like Jacob. His fear is not misplaced in the wrong things. He's not making poor decisions because he's afraid of the what people think. He fears God. He fears God so much that no matter what Joseph seems to be doing, he is willing to take on the punishment, whatever it is, whatever fate that truth-telling comes with, he still fears God over the fate of what he has to endure. So much so, if you think about it, when he goes and he tells his brother the message of what God has told him in a dream, he doesn't back down. He not only does he tell that message, he tells it to him twice. It makes him probably twice as mad at him. He fears God. He knows that God spoke to him in that dream, and he tells his brothers. And because of that, his brothers trade him off. Now, the, the interesting here thing here is it's almost like an implied thing. He's like, I fear God. It's almost like the question is, do you fear God? It's almost like he's challenging his brothers. He's saying, you know what? I'm a God who really fears. If I'm doing something wrong here by keeping you and accusing you to be a spy, I'm afraid that what God would do to me for doing something against an innocent person, in effect. So he's basically kind of laying out another thing here. If anything, he's pricking again at their conscience. He's scratching away at it. So much so that you can see it provokes a response out of him. Uh, I think the other thing that's interesting about this is he, he, lets, he keeps one in prison, but he lets the rest go back. I think he probably, after a few days, thought about the journey. I mean, the, Egypt's not close to Canaan at all. This is like 250, 300 miles. This is not like a three-day journey. This is like weeks to go across this. And if you're like trudging up the mountain with camels and all this food and a land full of famine and you're one dude, how are you going to protect yourself? You know, like, you're, like, suspect to all kinds of raiders. So I think he flipped it after three days of thinking about it, realized, like, no, I'll just keep one and send them all back because so, that way they'll get back there safely, for one. Plus, it's like he probably thought about his dad and his family and the servants that he left behind, the whole, whole uh, area. And he thought, I'd want to really bless them. So I'm going to send these guys, making sure that they have a safe journey back, effectively, was what I think probably went through his head. But he's sticking to the plan. Now... Notice the conscience that keeps pricking at these guys. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. They noticed, they said a couple things too, like, remember how distressed he looked? Like, it's a vivid memory in their mind. Like, 20 years have gone by, but that day, nobody's forgetting that day, are they? The day we sold our brother, like, that's not a day they're going to forget. So their memory is still very vivid about the the details. And they're just throwing this emotion out in front of uh, Joseph 
and Joseph is playing dumb like he doesn't know it. And Reuben pipes in, and Reuben, if you remember in the story, Reuben's the one that said, hey, don't kill Joseph. He's the one that convinces brothers. And while he goes off, the brothers sell Joseph. And he comes back, what'd you do? <laughs> and Reuben, being the oldest, probably took, uh, felt the weight of the sin the hardest because the oldest is always, you know, they're the responsible one. They're the ones that kind of watch over the rest of the family. They're entrusted with more. Um, so you can see Reuben's conscience is pricked as well. He says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? That would be Joseph. Uh, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must go and have an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. Uh, and then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them, bound before their eyes. A couple interesting parallels that are going on here. So uh, they didn't realize Joseph could understand them. I think that's, again, this is a wonderful story how it's playing out. I think it's fun to think about the advantage that he has right now over his brothers. I mean, think about this. This guy has gotten used to people bowing to him. You know, for seven years he's been collecting grain in the land. People have been just bowing to him everywhere. He goes. People don't lift a finger unless Joseph says lift a finger kind of thing. And now his brothers walk in, like he is the puppet master. He's got them by a string right now. He can do whatever he wants to them. He is so in charge and so in control of this moment. The restraint that he's showing here is pretty impressive, actually. The fact that he really doesn't just go off on them. The fact that he calms his emotions down enough to think this through and try to figure out, how can I test him? Aren't you glad that when we sin against God, he doesn't just react and punish us on the spot for what we actually truly deserve. The fact that God shows restraint, the fact that God could get very emotional about any one thing that we've ever done. I mean, he's the God of the universe, and we sin and we offend him, and we take it casually and flippantly all the time. But yet God still shows this great restraint for us. And Joseph here is kind of modeling that restraint and the fact that he doesn't go off on them. Uh, so an, an, another parallel, kind of like Jesus, is he cares a lot about his brothers, so much so that you can see the emotion welling up in him to the point where he had to kind of turn away from them to cry a little bit. You know, I wonder when God sees our sin that sometimes he doesn't turn emotionally and just weep for our sin sometimes. You see Jesus, when he walks into Jerusalem, he says, Oh, how I long for you to gather you like chicks under my wings. Jesus is always making statements about how he loves us and how it breaks his heart that we're not more like him. The other part of this, I think, that's interesting that kind of, again, has a spiritual parallel. Simeon, Simeon is chosen as the one pointed out. I don't know why Simeon. I kind of have some conjecture here. I'll throw it at you. Um, if you remember Simeon and Levi, uh, when their sister Dinah was raped by those guys in Shechem, uh, guess who Simeon and Levi killed overnight after the whole, uh, you know, hey, you guys just get circumcised and, and it'll all be good. We'll let you win or marry with you. No, that's not what they did. Simeon had a bloodlust for these people. They were so upset that Dinah was raped by this guy, so much so that they killed all the people of Shechem. And they took all the women and children and made them servants. Uh, not a good thing. Jacob was very upset. So maybe Simeon, when they were talking about, what do we do with Joseph? Simeon, the bloodlust, thirsty guy, maybe he said things like, let's kill him. I just, I can't stand my brother Joseph so much. Let's just kill him. Maybe. I don't know. Again, that's conjecture. That's not in scripture. 
but it makes you wonder, like, why was Simeon chosen out of all the other brothers? Was Simeon kind of the ringleader in that whole conspiracy in the first place? Nonetheless, he was taken publicly in front of his eyes. Imagine all the brothers, they're all just standing there, and all of a sudden these guards come out and bound him and pull him away and take him out in front of their eyes. You know, imagine the distressed look that he had in his face. Imagine the distress and fear in their faces in general. Imagine they looked a lot like Joseph did on the day they did what they did to Joseph. In fact, they even said, don't you remember how distressed Joseph looked? How I told you not to do that? Distressed faces all around. Now imagine this also. When Jesus was here, Jesus was bound publicly. He was whipped publicly. He was crucified publicly in a very visible display for those It was a very vivid time for a lot of people. Just as we kind of see these parallels come together and we recognize that, you know, sin has real consequences. Um, Brokenness comes from sin. So much so that Jesus was willing to break himself on a cross for us because of our sin and be bound because of our sin. Now the story continues on. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give him the provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. Uh, at the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened their sack and got, got feed for his donkey, and he saw that his silver uh, is in the mouth of the sack. My silver has returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other and trembling. Uh, so they're really scared now, right? Uh, Because the implications of this is like, hey, we tried to pay them. We got our money back. They're going to think that we stole our money. Like, there's something mischievous here that we're really not trustworthy people. So notice who they redirect their thoughts to, though. Right away, it says, what is it that God has done to us? They see money, which most of the time, it's a blessing. Like, if I get money in my sack, hey, I found money in my cushion on my couch, yay! Um, or, you know, like, maybe some of you went to the store, and the guy gave you, you know, you paid $20 back, and he gave you a $50 bill back by accident. You're like, hey, I got money in my sack. No, that's not honest. Don't do that. Give the money back. It's not yours. But notice what they do. They're, they're like, hey, this is really going to get bad and ugly for us. And they, they bring God into the equation and says, What is God doing to us? Again, their conscience is running wild right now, pricking them at every turn. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, and they said, The man who was lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us uh, though we are spying in the land. Notice they don't even know Joseph's name. The man who's over the land spoke harshly to us. Some man, I don't know, whatever his name. Um, (laughs) But we said to him, We are honest men. (laughs) Sure you are. Uh, we are not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who was lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are an honest man. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so I know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land." As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was filled a pouch of silver. When they, had, uh, when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Uh, the father, uh, Jacob, said to them, 
You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. Notice uh, Jacob's response again. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more. Neither of those statements are true. Now, I don't blame him for thinking that Joseph is no more because he's been told a lie and he's believed it all these years. But Simeon is not dead. They just told him. He's, he's down in Egypt. He's a prisoner right now. But in Jacob's mind, he went to the extreme and was like, ah, he's gone. He's gone. We're not getting him back. And then he finally finishes it off. Everything's against me. Sometimes I think we make out things worse than what they really are, don't we? Jacob's very guilty of that here, isn't he not? That things aren't really as bad as he thinks they are. I think we get led astray when we start fearing the wrong things and putting trust and faith in the wrong things. We get to the same points that he gets to. We will start making things out far worse than they actually are. I mean, we're so guilty of that. How do you combat that? Then Reuben said to his father, he says, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring back to you and trust him to my care, and I will bring him back. Now, this is a pretty grand gesture. Reuben, again, probably the guy that feels the weight of the sin the most, uh, feeling responsible here, kind of saying, hey, we need the food. If we don't get the food, we'll die. So here, take my two sons, kill them off if I can't bring Benjamin back to you. In other words, a life for Joseph's life and a life for Benjamin's life, you get to have both of my children if I don't bring them back. Now, this is pretty extreme, don't you think? Like, I've never offered up my kids for, for something else in exchange for something else. Um, but there is kind of a biblical picture, a model here that's being laid out before us. This is the great exchange. In other words, this is what Christ did for us. Christ gave his life for us, unworthy of it, he took our unrighteousness and gave it his righteousness to us. And that's this great exchange that we're having. Now, this is quite not as grand. Reuben is definitely making a gesture here. It's not quite as great as the exchange that we have in Christ. But nonetheless, it kind of is a picture of that. Now, Jacob is resting hard with this news. And he says, um, but Jacob said, he said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey uh, you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. My son will not go down there with you. I'm going to actually, this is like an awkward spot to leave the sermon, isn't it? Like, I'm actually going to pause. It's the end of chapter 42, but I think it's a good reason to pause here. One is because I've gone along enough. Uh, but two, <laughs> but two, I think I want, I want you to think about where you are in the story this week. I want you to think of how far we got. Most of you have read the story, Joseph. Most of you know how this ends. It's a happy story, right? It's everybody comes back, everybody's happy, Joseph's alive, yay, kind of thing. But notice the, the despair and the tragedy of the, what this guy is feeling. I want you to think about Jacob and where he's at and his headspace this week and how he's like, you know what? Simeon's gone, Joseph's gone. I'm not giving you Benjamin. I'm not trading my son away. He means more to me then life itself is kind of almost what he's saying here. That, you know what, I'm, at this point, I'm just, we're just going to starve to death, family. Sorry. He means too much to me. What would you be willing to trade away for new life? 
or continued life. Now, I've kind of presented to you earlier, it says, you know, have you learned about Jesus? He gives us life. Now, Jacob learned that there was food in Egypt and got life. I've told you this morning that Jesus gives us eternal life. What do you do with that news when you learn that? That demands a response. The other part of this, what do you fear most in life? Is your fear misplaced and leading you into decisions that probably aren't godly decisions? Throughout these stories and throughout the whole book of Genesis, you're seeing poor examples of what we should be doing over and over again. Maybe you've made some decisions out of bad fear and misplaced trust, and you need to rethink about it. Think about the gift of a conscience. It's a wonderful thing. Over and over again, their conscience is pricked throughout the story. Has your conscience told you something lately? Pay attention to your conscience. It may be that you are being told to give your life to Christ. That's a good thing. It may be told that you're guilty of sin. Well, that's a good thing. Your conscience should be telling you that because that's the truth. We cannot save ourselves. Only Christ can save us. What would you give in exchange for eternal life? These guys were just giving mere silver away to continue to get some bread to live again. But I want to take this a step deeper. Let's think about this for a second. What are the things that you hold on to that are so precious to you that you wouldn't even give it up? If I asked you today, like, hey, what's so important in your life that you would not give up today? Is it so important that you wouldn't give eternal life for? When Christ propositions himself to us, it is, is not just a, hey, do you believe me? Do you believe that I'm God? Like, the demons even know that Jesus is God, but they're not saved. They're not walking in the Lord. Believing that Jesus is God is not really what saves you. It's believing and accepting it and letting it change your life entirely is what the transformation is of a Christian. Real conversion happens when you give your life in exchange for this message. When you give up your life for the gospel. When you say to yourself, that's worth living for. That's worth anything in my life, any of my treasure trove, I'd give it all up to have be in relationship with that guy. That's what really conversion looks like. You may have met a lot of superficial Christians in your life that haven't given up. They, they are Christian in name only. They, you ask them, do you believe in God? Sure, I believe in God. But has your life changed? Have any actions in your life ever changed this weekend? Or any time in your life this weekend, I had a, I'm going to bring up a weird event. So we're standing, uh, my daughter was up at a camp. She's trying to get recruited uh, for softball and... Uh, as a lady, like every other word, the F-bomb was coming out of her mouth kind of thing. It was just kind of crazy sitting there listening to it. And at one point, uh, somebody noticed she had a tattoo on her arm, and it was Philippians 4.13. It's like, great. Like, irony, right? It was a, okay, every other word out of her mouth was the F-bomb, but yet she had Philippians 4.13 tattooed on her arm, and it became, that became part of the conversation piece. And it turns out, like, she's like, yeah, if I told my kids if they get tattooed, they can only have Bible verses on their, on their arm. I'm like, like, something's not adding up here. You can't, you can't say that he's Lord, but actually not change your life. 
Like, something's got to change. You're not, you're not really a Christian if nothing's changed in your life. If your behavior set is the same as it was before you know Christ and the same it is after Christ, you're probably not a Christian. And the Bible talks about this over and over again. Those who said they believed, but they say, Lord, Lord, when did we see you do those things? And the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. Lots of people say they believe, but their life and their actions don't reflect what they actually believe. If you believe this, it changes you, and you give up things in exchange for that eternal life. So much so that it, all of life is now filtered through that belief system, and your actions prove it over and over daily. So again, I go back to you. What has your conscience told you lately? Has it been pricked lately? Have you misplaced your fear? What are you going to do with this Jesus who loves you and died for you? Pray with me this morning. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you love us uh, beyond compare. God, we uh, continue to mess things up just like Jacob. We uh, continue to strive to try to be mindful of who you are, and we try to put our faith in you, but God, we mess up. And your grace is so good and so sufficient that you continue to love us through it. But God, uh, help us with the change. Help us with a heart that is new. Help us to find new life in you. Uh, every day when we turn uh, into this world, Lord, I pray that we don't look like the world, that we don't follow after the world, that it does not entice us to become uh, something that we should not be. God, I pray that our trust and our fears would be in you, Lord. The thing that is most worthy of fear is you, not the things of this world. God, make us the people that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.